0: Good morning. Nice to see all of you. If you have a Bible, would you please open to Matthew 28. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love to get one into your hands. So please raise your hand and we will get one to you shortly. Please feel free to keep this Bible as a gift from uh, this church to you. We're in Matthew 28. Now, um, just by way of reminder, we've paused our walk our slow walk through the Gospel of John, and we're in a series on the church. It's called Ecclesia, Features of a Faithful Church, and we have been honing in our attention the past three weeks, including today, on what in the world Jesus is talking about when he teaches that he gives local churches the keys of the kingdom, and that these keys of the kingdom that each local church holds are for binding and loosing, and so that's it's a, um, a new idea for some of us, and perhaps if you're visiting this morning, a new idea for you, but uh, this morning our focus is baptism. Lord willing, next week will be the Lord's Supper, the week after that, church discipline. But with that said, please look, look along with me in Matthew 28, beginning of verse 18. I'm going to read down to verse 20, and then we'll pray, and we'll jump into the word. Matthew 28, Jesus is speaking, beginning in verse 18, Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, this is the word of Christ. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, the gift of your spirit, the gift of your son. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to embrace and understand the brilliance and beauty of your Bible and what Jesus means and the implications for us on a practical level that we as a church and all gospel churches each hold the keys of the kingdom. So to that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. Well, to begin our time, I do want to ask us a question and it's this and it may not be a question that you have really thought about before how does a church know who belongs to it how does a church know who belongs to it what, what what do you actually do to do that how does a church know who belongs to it but there's actually a question underneath that question should a church even know who belongs to it. One of the things that we've seen in the past few weeks together is that a common perspective in the American West is that a local church is an optional add-on to the Christian life. And so often for mainstream evangelicalism, the church is treated as a spectator sport. It's the Sunday show. Maybe you come, maybe you don't, depends if you feel like it or not. Maybe it meets your needs or it doesn't, so you... You fly around town until you find a church that meets your needs. And then then when you do come, you come and it's just a spectator. Was the sermon good? Too long, too short? It's never too short. Funny, not funny enough? Sarcastic enough? Whatever. We have these criteria, but the, the thing is, we have been seeing, especially the past few weeks in Matthew 16, Jesus does answer that question for us. And in Matthew 16, Jesus, in effect, says this. Yes, I require a local church to know and decide who belongs to it. So so let me say that again, because that's the opposite of what I just described, both in my conversion experience and my early church experience as a new believer. And for many, in effect, in Matthew 16, we saw this the last two weeks, Jesus says, yes, a church must know and determine who belongs to it the question is how you know if you were to fast forward to acts chapter 2 peter steps up he preaches the first christian sermon he preaches the gospel mega church is born 3000 people come to faith and uh, repentance of sin and faith in jesus and do you remember what peter's first command of obedience to them is in acts chapter 2 be baptized, be baptized. So we saw in the first two weeks of this series that the central and distinguishing feature of a true and healthy church is confession of the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, the whole sermon was dedicated to Peter's great confession when he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What does that mean? We looked at that. And we saw last time that Jesus promises to build his church with the gospel. So what's the purpose of the gospel? Church building. It seems it's, it's it, The gospel sees dead people made alive, people in darkness brought to light, and they're not just brought, they're made Jesus' sheep, so to speak, but they're not just released into the wilderness, they're brought into local sheep pens called the local church. The gospel builds the church. That's what its intended purpose is. Is. But we saw shockingly and somewhat confusingly and mysteriously last week that Jesus gives every local church the keys of the kingdom. And the keys of the kingdom are for binding and loosing. He speaks of it in Matthew 16 with regard to Peter's gospel confession. And he speaks of it in Matthew 18 with regard to a local church exercising church discipline and removing somebody from the membership of the church. And the keys are for binding and loosing the doors of the kingdom so to speak, opening and closing. And I suggested last week that the way that we should think biblically about these keys of the kingdom is it's a key ring that has three keys on it. The key of baptism, the key of the Lord's supper, and the key of church discipline. And today we're focusing on the gospel key of baptism. And Lord willing, is the key next week is the key of the supper. And the week after that, the key of discipline. To understand what Jesus means in Matthew 16 and in Matthew 18. Now, this morning is a little different from our, our normal procedure where we really hyper-focus on a text and just eat the meat off the bone as we work through it. This is a doctrinal sermon. We're going to look at what the Bible says regarding baptism. So in one sense, it's going to be wide-ranging as we're thinking through all of Scripture together. But we will be landing on some key texts. So as a different approach this morning, if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you a biblical summary up front of what the New Testament teaches about baptism. And that summary I'm about to give you is going to serve as the outline for the sermon And we're going to walk through the explanation of it. So so here's the biblical summary, showing you the end at the beginning. The key of baptism is exercised by the local church as the public New Covenant naming ceremony that portrays the gospel, welcoming a new believer by faith into the membership of that church. Uh, That's a tightly wound mouthful, but I think that's a a really good summary of the whole New Testament's teaching on this doctrine. So here's the outline then. It breaks up that summary. Point number one, we're going to see this. The key of baptism is exercised by the local church. And we'll turn to Matthew 16 and Matthew 28 for that. Then point number two, continuing the summary as the public New Covenant naming ceremony, whatever that means. It's Matthew 28. Point number three, that portrays the gospel, welcoming a new believer by faith. And for that we'll go to Romans six and Galatians three. And then our final two points into the membership of the church and four concluding thoughts. So it's a little bit more lecture than ceremony today. But it's important to bring together what Scripture says. So let's let's move right into it. Point number one, the key of baptism is exercised by the local church. Let's refresh our ears and hearts with Matthew 16, 15 through 19. And then I'm going to read again Matthew 28 as I read at the beginning. Listen to what Jesus says in response to Peter's confession of the gospel. Matthew 16, 15. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, Peter's gospel profession, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And now over to, again to Matthew 28. Jesus has died for our sins. He has been buried. He has uh, risen from the grave. He is about to ascend to heaven. And he gives The Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. And here it is, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, our focus this morning is baptism. The task Jesus gives Christians holding the keys of the kingdom is to make disciples, Matthew 28. And Matthew 28 told us that we make disciples by going. The presumption is evangelizing, that we explain the who and what of the gospel. And if a person believes The gospel repents of their sins. Jesus gives a command in Matthew 28, baptize them, baptizing them. Now the word baptized, baptized, it means immerse or submerge. But notice in Matthew 28 that baptism is not an optional add-on to the Christian faith. It's the beginning of the Christian faith, so to speak. Baptism is a response to believing the gospel. So baptize is what the local church does with the first key of the kingdom, with a new gospel confessor. We baptize them. And since baptism follows a credible and verified confession of the gospel, it is a fatal error. Fatal error to think that baptism causes or contributes to salvation. That is a fatal error. Why do I say that? Any belief that baptism can create salvation in somebody apart from faith, anybody to to believe that baptism contributes to salvation, that makes the faith more faithy in terms of salvation, is a false gospel. Because that changes the gospel from justification by faith alone and Christ alone to justification by part faith and part works. That is, I need the work of baptism in order to be saved. That is not what the Bible teaches. I mentioned last week, jokingly, but it's it's true, what we see here is the key of baptism is exercised by the local church. I mentioned last week that what Jesus does not do is authorize us to go and just baptize ourselves. So it doesn't just meet Jesus and then go do a cannonball, a jackknife into the pool and baptize themselves. That doesn't happen. Uh, Providentially, this last week, I was talking with a buddy who is an associate pastor up in Washington. There's some turmoil on their elder board. There's theological disagreement. And part of it is over baptism. And there's an elder on his board who relayed a story of what he thinks is a true baptism. And this is what happened. There was a man who got on his knees in his house by himself, repented, believed the gospel, walked out his door, it started to rain, and he said, the Lord is baptizing me! Just so you know, theologically, that's nuts. It's wackadoodle. That is not... Uh, i'm sure his heart was in the right place it was just deadly wrong like that's not right so uh, so no the key of baptism is exercised by the local church we don't baptize ourselves or decide what baptism is or isn't jesus does and he gives it to the local church nor is Jesus' intention with baptism to uh make a sheep so to speak and then release them into the wild for the wolves why do I say that? The tradition I got saved in, my early Christian experience, and my interaction with other believers, and I think just sort of a general idea is that we, we think of baptism as this sort of privatized, individualized experience where someone gets dunked and they come out of the water and then this off they go. That it's sort of a, we're just sort of there to watch, but we're not important to, we're not a necessary ingredient in being there present when the baptism happens. I'm an arguing that Jesus is arguing is that we are a necessary ingredient to be there when a the baptism happens. So no, we don't uh, see, profess that someone's a sheep and then release them off into the wild to wolves. And no, rather, Jesus makes us sheep to put us in sheep pens called local churches. So this first point, the key of baptism, is exercised by the local church. So with the first key of baptism, Jesus authorizes. Now think about this. Jesus authorizes the church to recognize that a person has been forgiven or loosed or washed of their sins by a credible gospel confession. And then we open the front door to membership into the church through baptism. Right? Acts chapter 2. I mentioned it a few moments ago. Peter preaches the gospel 3,000 people respond by faith and repentance to the gospel. And he says, what do they do? They get baptized. They get baptized. Not because they felt like it, but because they were, it was the first obedient command in response to faith in the gospel. But here's what I don't want you to miss. Don't miss here the command in Matthew 28 when Jesus says, go, make disciples, baptize, command, Don't miss the command in 28 and its connection to Matthew 16 that we looked at the last two weeks. In Matthew 16, Peter makes the first great confession of the gospel. Jesus affirms and authorizes that confession. Yeah, Peter, you got me right and my work right. The who and what of the gospel right. So the question then is if in Matthew 16... It's about a right gospel confession. And then in Matthew 28, the local church is doing the baptizing. The question stands, who gets to decide if your gospel profession is credible or not? Have you ever thought about that? And actually, how do you know if your gospel profession is credible or not? That's the local church. Matthew 16 Matthew 18, Matthew 28. It's the family of believers filled with grace who have agreed on the who of the gospel, who Jesus is, the what of Jesus's work. We agree on it. And so who gets to decide if your gospel profession is credible or not? You or the church? The church does. Because we don't invent the gospel. It's given to us in the Bible. Bible. It's, it's what Scripture says. And we agree and see on the biblical gospel. And then we are filled with the biblical gospel. You're filled with the biblical gospel. We're joined together in the biblical gospel. And then if someone claims to have the gospel, hey, that's a biblical gospel. Welcome to the family. Who gets to decide if you join the church? You or the church? Can you, is it like Sam's club where you can just drive down, fill out a membership card and you're now a a member of Sam's club with your dues, who gets to decide if you join you or the church, the church does because Jesus gave the collective local church, the keys of the kingdom, Matthew 16, Matthew 18, the church decides who's in and who's out. It's not the wild west of freelance Christians. It's not a spectator sport. It is not a um, consumeristic perspective where you come to have needs met, and then the rest of the week you're out doing your own thing. Jesus expects the local church to vet gospel confessions and then baptize. That's really, this is a math problem. And here it is. Matthew 16 plus Matthew 28 equals baptism. Matthew 16, gospel confession. Matthew 28, uh, gospel commission equals baptism. That's how we're to think about the key of baptism is exercised by the local church. But we must keep going. But why is Jesus instituting submersion in water? I mean, if you think about it, it's weird. Every time I think about that, it's a very odd thing for jesus to institute in the local church taking a person and holding them underwater that could be misunderstood for other things it's very strange why baptism of all things our next two points are going to explain what and why baptism this point number two is going to be a little complex if you're not familiar with the bible point number two building on the summary the key of baptism is exercised by the local church, and here's point number two, as the public New Covenant naming ceremony. Okay, so let me say that again. As the public New Covenant naming ceremony. Look again at Matthew 28, verse 19. Here's the command of Christ. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations Baptizing them. But baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Trinity. The Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now here's where it's going to get complex for a moment, if you're not familiar with the Bible. If you were here, though, for the first sermon in this series, we saw that the entire biblical storyline, the spine of it, is is, is broken up across six divine covenants. Six divine covenants. So we talked about that in the first sermon. What I did not say in the first sermon or explain is that in four of those six divine covenants, God marked off who was in or who was out through covenant signs. Let me say that again. God marked off either who was in the covenant or out of the covenant by giving unique covenantal signs. The covenant signs not only showed who was in and out of the covenant, the signs also functioned as a visible summary of that particular covenant. What am I talking about? Do you remember Noah and the Noahic covenant? God gave a sign. What was it? Rainbow. Do you remember Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant? God gave a sign, Genesis 17, the sign of circumcision. Do you remember Moses in the Mosaic covenant? In Exodus 31, God gave the sign of the Sabbath. And how about now the forever new covenant in Christ? Jesus has given us the twin signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Luke twenty-two twenty, Take this cup, drink it, for this is the cup of the New Covenant. It's my blood poured out for you. So as the New Covenant Church, think about this, we each bear the one-time entry sign of baptism. And then every week together, we have the ongoing good standing sign of the Lord's Supper. And we'll see more detail on that next week. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, which Jesus instituted, function as the visible summary of the gospel and reminders of our gospel admission into the new covenant. I've said in the past, if you you will misunderstand the Bible if you don't understand how the Bible has been fit together and told to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that's across these divine covenants. So the signs show who's in and who's out. So whatever baptism signifies at this point, what we need to understand is that you cannot miss. Baptism is the public and visible sign of entrance into the new covenant church. Let me say it this way. Those of Abraham kept circumcision. Those of Moses kept Sabbath. If someone was Abraham and refused circumcision, they were put out of the covenant community. Those of Moses, if they broke Sabbath, they were put out of the covenant community. Now, those of Jesus, we keep baptism and the Lord's Supper. What is church discipline? putting somebody out of the covenant community and withholding the Lord's table, which is the sign of the new covenant from them. That's the next two weeks. So God is smart, and he's brilliant. And he's given us these beautiful pictures that tangibly make visible the invisible gospel as gospel people participate in baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's those moments that we see, ah, here is the new covenant community in Christ, So baptism is public, and it's intended to be witnessed by those holding the keys, namely the church. So to begin to answer what is baptism, we see that it's the command of Christ to be obeyed. And then baptism, you're to be vetted and affirmed, and then performed... By the local church. The local church is responsible to vet. And vet means hearing that confession of the gospel. And then the church affirming that confession of the gospel. And then the church performing the baptism. To show forth that person's faith in the gospel. And that's for us the entrance sign into the new covenant church. But this this second point is it's a public new covenant Naming ceremony. So it's public, it's New Covenant. What's naming ceremony? Well, you heard again in Matthew 28:19. 19, uh, what do we say over the person we're baptizing? I baptize you in the name, singular, of the Trinity, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So when we come out of the water, we're carrying a new family name. We're carrying a new family name, the family name of God, as we're going public with our faith in baptism. So baptism is like an adoption ceremony, in which we're transferred from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and into a new family, God's family. So baptism shows that we now share and bear together the family name of God. So baptism, then, is how the church visibly and publicly knows who belongs to us, and now who we belong to. And it's why the church holds the keys, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. We hold keys to open the doors to membership to let a new family member into the household of God. That's point number two. Now point number three, continuing the summary... The key of baptism is exercised by the local church as the public New Covenant naming ceremony, and here it is, that portrays the gospel, welcoming a new believer by faith. And so here we get to this symbolism or the meaning of baptism. Sabbath meant something. Circumcision meant something. Baptism in the Lord's Supper meant means something what does baptism and the lord's supper symbolize as the entry sign into the new covenant the gospel the gospel we are gospel people we've been saved by the gospel it's the power of god for salvation we're built by the gospel we're bound together by the gospel we are gospel people we are the people Of the good news. We are people who have believed the good news. And turned from sins. And turned to Christ. Romans chapter 6. Verses 3 and 4. The apostle Paul says. Do you not know that all of us. Who have been baptized. Into Christ Jesus. Were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him. By baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And if we had time to keep going in Romans 6, we would see that our baptism coming out of the water is not just new life now, but also just as Jesus rose and ascended into heaven, we will be resurrected and will also be brought home to heaven. It's all about the gospel, Romans 6 says that every time we see someone get baptized, we are seeing what Jesus did for us reenacted. We are re-strengthened. We are reminded of how amazing Jesus is. Jesus went onto that cross to carry our sins for us in our place. He bled and died, and that blood, by faith, washes away our sins. Jesus Took our sins on that cross, and he went into the grave. He was buried. And so when we lower a person into the water, that is symbolic of them dying with Christ and going into the grave with Christ. It's symbolic of their sins getting washed away in Christ. But do we leave them there? We don't leave them there. We bring them out of the water. It's not a drowning ceremony, it would be in jail. It's a resurrection ceremony. The person is brought out of the water, washed clean, symbolically, because of the work of Christ. And they are identifying with Christ, what Paul says in 6.4 in Romans, he was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father that we might walk in the newness of life. So we see the gospel reenacted every time baptism takes place. That's why it's the new covenant ceremony. Baptism for us depicts depicts the who and the what of the gospel. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh, truly God and truly man on our behalf to live in our place, to do what we would would not and could not do, make ourselves right with God. He lived in our place. He died in our place. He rose in our place for us because he loved us us, to pour out grace on us, to rescue us from God's wrath. That's all what baptism symbolizes and summarizes as the entrance sign of the new covenant. And so we are symbolically dying with Jesus, being buried with Jesus, and rising with Jesus to new life. It's our personal identification with Christ. And so we go into the water and we come out. And of course... Baptism is by faith. It's our personal, faithful response to the gospel we believed in Matthew 28. Right? Go, therefore, make disciples, evangelize, baptize. Baptism is by faith. As I mentioned earlier, baptism does not give saving faith. Baptism does not contribute to saving faith, nor, as some true believers hold, baptism does not promise future faith that might exist hopefully one day in the future. Baptism is designed by Christ to exhibit existing saving faith that responds to the gospel. And of course, that makes sense. Back in the first sermon, as we were thinking about all those different divine covenants, we looked at Jeremiah 31 and the promise there of the new covenant. And what makes, part of what makes the new covenant new is that everybody in the new covenant is actually a believer. Unlike the Abrahamic covenant, unlike the Mosaic covenant. And so it makes perfect sense to only baptize believers since baptism is the entry sign into the new covenant in keeping with Jeremiah 31. For example, Galatians chapter 3. Listen to how um, inseparable faith and baptism are in these two verses. Galatians 3, verse 26 and 27. The apostle says, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ Jesus. Faith and baptism are two sides of one coin. The clear connection between the gospel confession in Matthew 16 and baptism in Matthew 28 is that the church does not baptize non-gospel confessors because Jesus does not build his gospel church with non-gospel people. The New Covenant Church holding the keys of the kingdom is responsible to Jesus to affirm true gospel confessions and then declare God's triune name over the new believer in baptism as a naming ceremony and entry sign into the new covenant. That's what baptism is. So baptism does and why baptism is so beautiful because baptism doesn't contribute to saving faith but it strengthens and sanctifies our faith as we see the gospel reenacted. This leads us to our two final points. Point number four, building on this idea of the church holding the keys and bringing people into the church, here's the full statement of our summary statement. Point number four, the key of baptism is exercised by the local church as the public New Covenant naming ceremony that portrays the gospel. Welcoming a new believer by faith, here it is for this point, into the membership of that church. So in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, make disciples by going, baptizing, and then teaching them to observe all that Jesus said. Bringing them into local communities called local churches. Now, the purpose of the key of baptism is to open the front door of the church to welcome in a new brother or sister so they can hold the key with us of the Lord's Supper and the key of church discipline if necessary. But here's where I want to pause, get into the weeds and get very practical about just life in the church. I want to address the role of pastor elders in the whole process of welcoming new members into the church and holding the keys. Now, I mentioned in the last few sermons that in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, Jesus' goal there is not to say all there is to say about the local church. He'll do that in the rest of the New Testament. In Matthew 16 and 18 and in 28, Jesus is laying the foundation. So if we keep reading the Bible and finish the New Testament, we discover in the rest of the Bible that Jesus equips and gifts pastor elders to local churches, to shepherd and oversee those churches as the churches hold the keys together. We also see that pastor elders are like sheepdogs. Acts chapter 20. Our task is to roam the fence of the sheep pen to watch out for wolves who are trying to get into the sheep pen or wolves that may have already snuck in in sheep's clothing and have to be removed from the sheep pen. So pastor elders oversee the church, they shepherd the church, they guard the church, and yet Jesus is clear in Matthew 16 and 18, it's the local church that finally holds the keys together, not just the elders. Some church traditions say only the elders hold the keys of the kingdom. We don't think that's right. We think the local church does. So how do we fit this together then? Pastor elders hold the keys with the church as fellow members and are authorized by the church to vet and affirm confessions of faith on the church's behalf. Let me say that again and then add a little bit more detail in there. The pastor elders, we hold the keys not exclusively but with the members of the church. Because we've all agreed together in our constitution the who and what of the gospel. And how we will organize our church life together. So the pastor elders hold the keys as fellow members with the church. And yet we've been set apart by the church, affirmed and recognized as gifted by Christ. To vet and affirm confessions of faith on the church's behalf. Let me try to paint that picture. So so this is in keeping, the three years that I've been here, every time I've stepped into the baptismal to perform a baptism, you've heard me say every time I baptize you on behalf of this church in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then we invite that new gospel confessor to make confession before you so that you would affirm that gospel confession. It was pre-affirmed by the elders because we heard the testimony to bring them to the water in the first place. And then now when they say their testimony, we all hear it. We're all just tears in our eyes, just nodding yes of Jesus' work in their life, of how amazing his transformation is. And so we affirm because they've been vetted more deeply by the elders. So that's why you hear me say, "I I baptize on behalf of this church. Baptism is not of subjective, privatized ceremony of which is meaningless for the people who are watching. It is nothing but meaningful for us because we hold the keys together, because we've agreed on the who and what of the gospel, and we're inviting someone else to now come hold the keys with us. So when your pastor elders meet with a person, hear their profession of faith, the testimony, we present them to the church, and then now you hear their confession also. And then I baptize them or one of the other elders, on our behalf. Because we agree, we've already covenanted together on the who and what of the gospel. It's how we exercise the keys on a practical level together. So Lord willing, this coming Resurrection Sunday, Easter, when that happens and we baptize people, it's going to be an us moment of seeing the sheer wonder of God's saving grace of bringing people from death to life. But now let's take this a step further and get further into the weeds. The Bible's clear. We only get baptized once. You don't get baptized every time you go to a new church. There's one baptism, Ephesians 2. So we only get baptized once. We don't get baptized every time we go to a new church. So what happens when you move to a new church? What's supposed to happen? Are the keys of the kingdom for vetting and affirming thrown out the window? Is it only applicable to baptism? When a new person shows up to the church claiming to follow Christ, um, are we no longer responsible to to vet them and their profession of faith? They want to come participate in our church life, but do we just say, sure, go ahead and do it? Of course not. A local church is responsible to exercise the keys upon every person who wants to participate in the life of the new church and make this church their home. Again, how do we know they're not wolves? How do we know that they don't have such different understanding of the what of the gospel that it would be divisive to have them among us? We can't be naive to think that someone can walk in and say, hey, I'm a Christian. Oh, great, we're the same. Without hearing a profession and confession of faith, testimony of conversion. How do we ensure they are not wolves? How do we ensure to the best of our ability that these well-meaning people are not false converts? Or as I said, with such a different understanding of the what of the gospel. That they disagree with our shared beliefs that allow us to strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. And therefore lead to division in the church. What are we to do with someone who comes and says, I've been baptized, but they want to participate in the life of the church. The pastor elders, we oversee and guard the flock by membership interviews. Membership interviews. And central to a membership interview is hearing someone's gospel confession and testimony Of a previous valid baptism. So we're not going to baptize them again, but we want to hear that they were truly baptized. And you may have noticed I said the word valid baptism. I know that you're excited for me to explain what that phrase means. Thank you for being excited. Why did I say that your elders are searching for a valid baptism? Because there is such a thing as invalid or false baptism. What makes a valid baptism? Two components. A valid baptism requires true gospel confession in a true gospel context. Those come together to make a valid baptism. What do I mean? I think it might be obvious, but we're listening to ensure that this person had a true gospel profession in the past. They had a correct who of the gospel, a what of the gospel, rather than no confession of the gospel. Right? Maybe they had a false confession or a false gospel. They had a a false Jesus. How do we know they had the right Jesus? Did they have the Mormon Jesus? Did they have the Roman Catholic Jesus? Did they have the New Age Jesus? Did they have the Jehovah's Witness Jesus? Did they have the pop culture Jesus? Did they have the Bible Jesus? Who saves by justification alone, in himself alone, according to his word alone, to God's glory alone. How do we know they had the right gospel confession? We need to hear that to make sure that it wasn't a false confession, because if you're not a believer, when you get baptized, you weren't baptized. You got wet, but it wasn't Christian baptism. (laughs) So we're listening for a gospel confession, and we want to ensure that it occurred in a gospel context. Now, what do I mean? A group of people who have a false gospel, a false Jesus, cannot perform a true baptism. So even if you were um, just born again and super immature in your faith, didn't know your Bible, and, but you, you were regenerate, but you got baptized by a group of people who were not regenerate and they had a false gospel, that's not a valid baptism because it wasn't a true baptism. It wasn't a true baptism. The expectation of Scripture, Matthew 28, is that the believers are baptizing, not unbelievers. So as pastor elders, we're listening for a gospel context rather than a non-gospel context. Now, a gospel context, when you read the Bible, the regular intended audience for baptism is the local church. There are some outlier situations, such as the Ethiopian eunuch or Cornelius' household. Those are irregular to the normal pattern of Scripture. So I'm using regular and irregular. What do I mean? So the normal, regular expectation is that we, holding the keys, are the audience. That's why Baptist churches put baptismals in the church. It's why. Because we're the intended audience. But there are still gospel contexts that are irregular. So you could have been in a gospel context and been baptized at camp, at a retreat, in a parachurch ministry, or a family trip, or in a dove shaped hot spring at a youth pastor's conference, such as myself. So I had an irregular baptism. You may wonder why I glow with holiness. It's because I was baptized in a dove shaped hot spring. But part of my reason of being baptized there is I was saved in a tradition that really um, uh, good-heartedly and unintentionally did not value baptism and did not pay close attention to what scripture said. And so it was actually when my mom texted me saying I should get baptized that I realized I should get baptized. Thank you, mom, for texting me. It's my mom. So you can have a gospel context that is not the normal context of a church, but it's still valid. So in a way that matches a, a um, well, let me back up for a second. Why do we do this? Are we just theological neatniks? No. Do you see the grace on behalf of the church? If we're talking with this, this friend who's sitting at the table with us, and we discover they actually don't have the biblical gospel, the biblical Jesus... What does that become for the pastor elders? A gospel opportunity to share the saving love of Jesus, to give better news than whatever they've believed in the past, because only the gospel is the true good news. And so we have an opportunity to to invite them to faith in Christ. And to invite them, if we recognize that they, or, say this, If they were a believer, but they realize that it was a non-gospel context, or they realize I was baptized in a gospel context, but I wasn't a believer, then we get to invite them to obey Jesus and be baptized for the first time. Because any other baptisms beforehand was not baptism. So in a way that matches a new believer getting baptized, that's why pastor elders interview new people coming into the church who want to participate in the life of this church. We fence the church to look for wolves and false converts out of love and respect and grace and be able to share the gospel with people and or to rejoice in God's saving grace and beautiful baptism and invite people into our church life together. And all of that is the pastor elders exercising the keys on behalf of this church. And then at a member meeting, we present the new members to the congregation, kind of like baptism. We just put a, your slide picture up on the screen. And so we all can welcome them into the fold and say, we're responsible for you now, and you're responsible for us now, and we care and love for each other, in a similar way that we do with a baptized person. So so here's a little tiny, uh, here's a slide that summarizes what the pastor elders are thinking through when we're interviewing people who claim to have been baptized in the past, you can see that there's this grid here, and there's only one type of valid baptism gospel profession and gospel context. So, if you weren't confessing the gospel when you got saved, that doesn't make sense. If you weren't confessing the gospel when you got baptized, such as a baby, you have not been baptized, according to the Bible, contrary to Reformed theology and Covenant theology. You have not been baptized as a believer. And if it's a non-gospel context, those are invalid baptisms. So, so why are we going into this detail? Baptism and membership interviews, led by the pastor elders, is how we ensure... To the best of our ability that we all agree on the what and who of the gospel. The book of Revelation says the Lamb's book of life is in heaven. And every believer's name is written in that book of life. If heaven keeps roles of who are members of the universal church, how much more should the local church keep roles of who are members of that local church? And if only believers are in the new covenant... Membership interviews and baptism interviews is how we, to the best of our ability, ensure that the roles of the church match the roles of heaven and match the roles of the new covenant. That's the purpose of the keys of the kingdom. So how do you respond? Four ways, they're quick. So here's our Bible summary statement again. The keys of baptism is exercised by the local church as the public New Covenant naming ceremony that portrays the gospel, welcoming a new believer by faith into the membership of that church. So what's the first way to respond? Kind of like the past few weeks, if you're not a believer, the main note you heard this whole sermon was baptize, 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 A friend believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins and be baptized and portray that gospel for us by faith. You you may be here because the and you don't know it, maybe a friend invited you, maybe you wandered into these doors and you don't know why you're here. Friend, understand that God is moving in your life to bring you here in this place to speak to you from His Word, to let you know that Jesus Christ and Jesus alone saves, and you cannot save yourself. Jesus alone cleans us from our sins. You cannot clean yourself from your sins. It's in Christ alone. And so by faith, we believe and receive the free forgiveness He gives that He worked for us. If you don't know Jesus, friend, turn to Jesus and have your sins washed away forever and be clothed in the righteousness and goodness and beauty of Christ. And then get baptized. Number two, if you are a believer... But you have not been baptized, or now recognize that you were baptized when you did not confess the gospel, or you are baptized in a non-gospel context. Friend, get baptized out of obedience to Christ. A very close friend of mine uh, who is in ministry, he's a pastor now, raised in the church, and Baptisms at camp and he never got baptized never got baptized and then into college and then never got baptized and into young adulthood never got baptized, and got to the point where he was embarrassed that he had not yet been baptized and in that embarrassment was also attached pride he didn't want to get baptized into his 20s into his 30s a believer since he was five or six years old and it was in his late 30s that he realized, it was actually in the last two years, he realized that he was disobeying Jesus out of pride and embarrassment and losing face because he came from a big family name that was in a big church and generations of believers in the church and he had somehow slipped through the cracks and hadn't been baptized. And he got baptized and everybody cried. It was beautiful. You may have been a believer For decades upon decades and decades, and that's your story. I've been at this church for 30 years. Can you please let us watch you get baptized as we cry? Please obey Jesus and get baptized. And if you are a believer and you've been baptized, and you've come to this church, or maybe you're visiting and you're at a new church, but you have not submitted yourself to your fellow believers to have them affirm your faith and welcome you to hold the keys of the kingdom with them, friend, walk in the fullness of Jesus' gospel intentions for your life and join that church. Because if you don't, you're not holding the keys of baptism, Lord's Supper, and discipline. Friend, join the church. It's not an invention. Many of you know my story. For me to say those words, I got saved in a tradition that said membership is a man-made invention. And the keys of the kingdom that Jesus gives explain otherwise. It's not a man-made invention. It's not just some made-up Southern Baptist thing. It's what the Bible says. So like I said a few weeks ago, whether you are an underground church in Iran of three families or a multi-set mega church in San Diego of 10,000, you need to have in place some way that the people of that church hold the keys together in baptism, Lord's Supper, and discipline. Call it what you will. If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and looks like a duck, it's church membership. (laughs) And lastly, if you are a member of this church, are you beginning to see and taste the meaningfulness of church membership? Not a consumeristic spectator sport. We, you are the intended audience that we affirm that baptism taking place. When when Elder Scott leads us to the Lord's table in a few moments and we lift our hands to show our ongoing good standing in the new covenant. We are showing that to each other and then if we have to, exercising the keys of discipline with tears in our eyes and grace on our lips of calling someone to repentance to remove someone from the fellowship of the church? Do you see the meaningfulness that we share, not just the elders, us? Are you beginning to see the wonder and joy of the sacred responsibility that it's not just the pastors who are responsible for the church? The church is responsible for the church. We have to get that into our hearts and minds. We are responsible for each other. Are you beginning to appreciate the care and responsibility we share for each other? Can you see why Jesus intends the local church to make the invisible gospel visible through our love for one another and baptism, the Lord's Supper, even church discipline? Amen? Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the strange gift of baptism. We thank you for the the amazing grace gift of salvation that you would turn to people like us and shower us with your grace and love lord we confess and acknowledge that your word tells us we love you because you first loved us thank you for that grace lord thank you for the grace of the keys to, to love each other and care for each other and to be concerned for each other and to pray for each other and to watch out for each other. Thank you for the strange gift of baptism and the portrait of the gospel that it is. We love you, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.